You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Charles Spence, who is a professor at Oxford University and who heads up the Cross-Modal Research Lab, which uh, is sort of a branch of the psychology department, but it sounds like you guys have a lot more fun than a typical group of psychologists. We're here to talk about his latest book, which is called Sense Hacking. All right, now look, Charles has another fantastic book, which is called Gastrophysics. And I was planning on actually talking to you, Charles, about gastrophysics. And then I found out about this book. And so I had to read this. And now this has got me bursting with so much uh, interesting ideas. I thought maybe we could just talk about this for the next hour or so. Is that all right with you, Charles? It is indeed. Okay. I'll tell you, it's not often that I encounter a book where I learn a whole bunch of new terms. So I'm just going to rattle off some things that, that I read, terms that I saw in this book, some of which I'd heard before, but which I think most people in the audience may not have heard before. So in addition to sense hacking, you've got dopamine fasting, forest bathing, sensory congruence, biophilia. I've actually done another podcast on that. A human nearing, sensory Super additivity, sensory dominance, super additivity, nature deficit, attention restoration therapy, sensory nudging, sensism. You talk about cognitive ergonomists. You talk about psychoacoustics. You talk about light hunger, sleep inertia, tactile contamination. And of course, the Lynx effect, which I had never heard anything about the Lynx effect. So, you know, you pack a lot into a really small book. And I was wondering, was this book? something which you had in the back of your head for a while, or is this something that, you know, was COVID induced because it's come out since you've uh, been in quarantine? Yeah. So um, maybe COVID finished might be the more the term. I've been writing it for uh, two or three years and struggling to get enough time to uh, finish the last couple of chapters. But COVID lockdown certainly helped with that when it uh, curtailed all travel, all conferences and uh, pretty much everything else. The ideas behind the book, in a way, really go back to 2002, so almost two decades ago, when I um, wrote a big report for ICI, as was Dulux Paints, Quest Fragrance House, all part of the same organization, ICI, and brought in to think about how the senses connect and how the senses can affect well-being in everyday life, which the term sensism was coined. And that was 2002, 2003, the, uh, the ICI report on the secret of the senses came out. Since then, I moved off into food and drink a lot more, hence the uh, gastrophysics book you mentioned a little while ago. But over the last two or three years, I've sort of come back to revisiting ideas around sensory well-being and how anyone of us can kind of yeah, hack our senses in order to enhance our social, cognitive, emotional well-being. So it's sort of been in the head for 20 years. I've been sort of collecting uh, evidence. Now, what's really nice for me was, in fact, you know, seeing how 20 years ago, probably the term forest bathing had been mentioned by somebody somewhere, but people were a bit skeptical about it. Maybe they're still a bit skeptical about it. But certainly in these last 20 years, it's nice to see how many of the areas that are covered back in 2003, how much more research has come out on uh, you know, the benefits of the nature effect, biophilia and so on, pheromones and uh, touch hunger, Many of these themes, many of these sort of deficits, I think, that we face in daily life are ones that have probably been exacerbated by the COVID lockdown 
and hence I think it's sort of timely, though also a little tricky when we're just finishing up the book to know quite where we'd be kind of a year later from when I handed in the last chapter. Would COVID be long forgotten? Would it still be with us? And hence you're trying to think about how to frame parts of the book, given on how you guess the world might turn out. Well, let me go back in time a little bit because this is an unusual role that you have. Whenever I pop over to the psychology department to listen to talks and so forth, you know, you've got your vision people, you've got your hearing people, you've got your smell people. I mean, there's not a lot of them, but you've got some smell people. Now there's a lot of touch people. I know here at Berkeley, we've got some touch people. You rarely meet somebody who is thinking more broadly about the entire portfolio of senses. And so what I found interesting about your work is not only that you dove into all of these individual sensory experiences, but you talk a lot about kind of sensory congruence and mismatches between the senses. And so how did you ever academically convince Oxford to allow you to be this kind of sense uh, generalist as opposed to being mm-hmm. this narrow, very specialized sense person? Well, I think we gave them a pretty, pretty loose rein in Oxford and maybe elsewhere to sort of pursue our own um, interests in the belief that we have a good sense of, of where interesting problems lay and where our skills can help us to address some of those interesting issues. I think that the notion of individual sensory experts, the, the vision scientists, the hearing scientists, the touch scientists, the smell and taste, as you mentioned, that is very much the traditional view, uh, sort of built on that feeling that you know, the brain is such a complicated thing we couldn't possibly understand what's going on. Why not break it down into smaller bits, into simpler bits, like just vision, just hearing. As I mentioned in the book, when I started in Oxford back in 1997 as that teaching, there was a vision guy, there was a hearing guy, and they hadn't spoken to each other you know, for decades, literally. They'd had some falling out at some departmental meeting and just refused to you know, be in each other's presence. But the really surprising thing was that it didn't feel like they felt they were missing anything. The person who was interested in the eyes and in vision what could they learn possibly of interest you know, about hearing? It's almost entirely separate sensory worlds. And what we've seen changing over the last you know, 20, 25 years is really the next generation, I think, of younger, which I was once, uh, perception scientists who are really interested in combining the senses. On the one hand, because they realise you know, that we don't live in a unisensory world. We're always taking in inputs from different senses and combining them. And also because I, I think there's, there's so much stuff to be done in the multisensory field, because so few people have thought about it previously, that there's a lot of opportunity to do interesting new research in a way that you know, some of those individual sense studies, it's much harder to find something, that, a bit of ground where nobody's been before. So I'm really part of a wave, I think, of, you know, of the young scientists who are, who are fascinated by the, the way the senses connect. Some of the surprising ways, in fact, and that's, you know, some of those terms you mentioned, the superadditivity, the subadditivity, the sensory congruence, the sensory dominance. These are some of the surprising ways the senses interact. And I think it's really important to think about how the senses interact because it's clear that they don't always just add up in a kind of one plus one way. And hence, one finds many people thinking about the senses in everyday life, sensory marketeers, for example, who maybe are have been encouraged to think about smell for the first time, an extra sense, but haven't really thought about how the senses connect and that can lead to all sorts of problems if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you talk about some others like a seasickness or car sickness, right? Where there's a kind of a divergence between what you're feeling and what you're seeing maybe, or you talk about when there's a really bad voiceover and so what you hear doesn't line up with what you see in the movement of the lips and then how you can actually use this 
discongruence to heal things like phantom limb syndrome and, and so forth. Is this a, an area of study that you think is, is just going to expand and, and get greater? Trying to put all these pieces together. I mean, we always talk about the difference in generalists and specialists, and um, there's a back and forth between the two. It's clear that you know, most of our experiences, especially the most pleasurable experiences in life, are uh, multisensory, engage many of our senses, be it food, be it sex, be it whatever, shopping. And hence, I think you can't really can't just try and stick your head in the ground and say, this. it's all too complicated to think about how all the senses interact, but you need to be aware of the interactions because they're always there. And sometimes, you know, it's things that we're aware of, but other times it can be sensory cues that we're not really aware of in the background, like the smell of our own home. I give us the example when I start the book, the smell that's has surrounded so many of us while we've been locked down in our own home for so many months. You had a smell that's so familiar that none of us recognize it, except when we come back from a long holiday and suddenly you open the door and there's that smell there. And we know everybody else's home smells, but we rarely realize our own home smells. And the question of you know what that might be doing to our emotional well-being, to our stress levels, especially when combined with lighting and with music and with touch or the lack thereof, that being the touch hunger. Uh, so I think it's just going to grow. And there's clearly more and more interest from, you know, from, from sensory marketeers, from those working in branding, from those working in healthcare. You have a chapter on you know, multi-sensory hospitals. And there's clearly a great opportunity to enhance the offering in a whole range of sectors, you know, from the workplace to the gym, to the hospital, to the, to the home, by considering the senses and, and making sure that they tell a congruent story without uh, overloading us. I want to subtitle of your book is how to use the power of your senses for happier, healthier living. And yet a lot of the research that you mentioned was driven by companies that are trying to basically sell stuff. You talk about how the car companies would research the sound of the engines and the sound of the doors shutting and the manufacturers of coffee machines and uh, refrigerators will think about how they sound. And, and yet this kind of sense hacking seems like the kind of hacking that we don't like. Is this book like a, cause you work with a lot of these companies. Is there a divergence at any point between the sense hacking for good and, and sense hacking for commercial profit? I mean, is this a mea culpa book? It's like, yeah, I've, I've sold, I've worked to help sell all this stuff and now I'm going to help you do it for good. Well, I'm, I'm very sort of open about the fact that Crossmodal Research Lab, where I'm based at Oxford, is quite unusual in that most of our funding over the last 25 years has come from industry, from a whole range, from car companies, with Toyota and BMW, through home and personal care, food and drinks companies, pharmaceuticals and so on and so forth. And sometimes there can be a sense that if they're paying for the research, then you know they're trying to manipulate us, um, make us, as you say, maybe buy more, uh, spend more, uh, spend different. And uh, while that is potentially possible, I think the insights that have come out of that research, those insights are really about how you know the sounds, the smell, the sight, uh, the feel of an environment can affect us in, in various different ways. Those insights, that's just sort of knowledge that's not, not really positively or negatively balanced, good or bad. It's just knowledge. And it's clear that perhaps some of the companies may use that knowledge to their advantage, whether that's against uh, what the consumer wants. I'm not so sure. I think, you know, very often the idea is to, you know, to try and enhance the retail environment so that people will spend more time there because they are happier there. And if they're happier there, then they may spend more. But then it's not really targeting some secret buy button. If you can get the combination right, you just spend it's sort of maybe mediated through an enhanced experience. 
but those insights, I think, are just insights about uh, the senses, their impact, and how they combine. And those insights can be used by any one of us to uh, help improve our own well-being and to analyze the sorts of things that may be going on around us that we didn't realize. And it can be, if, you know, if maybe I've been lucky. Certainly, we've tried to publish as much of the research as we can that has been funded by industry. So it is out there in the public domain. Anybody could use it. And by going through the kind of the um, situations of everyday life in sense hacking, looking from the home to the work to commuting to the garden to the gym to the hospital to the to the sleep to dating, the idea is that you know just sort of show people how they could potentially use those insights themselves and the sorts of benefits that might ensue uh, and the sort of problems that might help to address. So in that sense, it is trying to put all the information in the hands of the average person. And for me, it's kind of, while it might not seem obvious, to me it sort of feels like a natural progression from the uh, gastrophysics. And almost there in the gastrophysics, I was looking at how everything around the food can affect the food, from the lighting to the music to the cutlery to the weight. And now it's almost like putting a person in place of the food and all of the same sort of factors probably affect us in the same way that they affected the food. It's just easier to sometimes study food as a medium. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like when we think about companies like Facebook, that they're interested in promoting engagement, they're interested in creating uh, customer loyalty, they're interested in, in getting customer stickiness and so forth. And I think sometimes they, we have to learn what makes things sticky and what makes things seductive so that we can decide you know, for ourselves how much we want to engage. On that point, you mentioned at the very beginning of the book that you know, some of us in today's world might be overstimulated. Our senses might be bombarded by, you know, a lot of uh, sensory overload. And yet at the same time, there may be members of our society, particularly elderly people who are experiencing some kind of sensory underload. Do, do you think that there is a sensory therapy is going to be a new occupation where we, we can engineer the sensory environment in ways that as engineers to optimize the sensory experience and come up with some kind of diagnostic as to uh, what our sensory experiences are like? Indeed, that's definitely possible and probably already happening, in fact. So I do sort of draw this distinction at the beginning, as you mentioned, between the kind of sensory overload that many of us report and complain about on a daily basis of too much information, too much noise, too many alerts, too many messages, too much going on. But also when you drill down into it, very often you find that it's an overload of our kind of rational, higher senses of seeing and of hearing, senses that can be more easily stimulated by digital technologies. But on the flip side, you find very few people who are saying, hold on, I've just got too much touch going on, but too many smells, too many tastes. You just don't find people complaining about overstimulation, I think, of the more emotional senses. So I think you know, rather than thinking about this sort of just that we are sensory overloaded, I think it's more about a sensory imbalance. And that sensory imbalance is, is important because by neglecting our more emotional senses... And there I'm thinking, oh, you know, of touch and of smell and of taste. By neglecting, you know, what is our biggest sense, the skin uh, and all the tactile receptors therein, you know, something like 50, 16 to 18% of body mass is your sense of touch. I think it's really important to make sure that those senses are stimulated because they can convey perhaps more easily uh, emotional benefits than can the higher senses. Uh, I think we see, uh, I borrow the term from Tiffany Field, a touch researcher from the States, who uh, talks a lot about touch hunger and how in, in contemporary society, many of us, either for fear of litigation or because we just don't like touching old people, there's a lot less touch, interpersonal touch than perhaps there was. And we see people almost self-medicating to try and you know engineer 
a better sensory mix for themselves, be it by you know, all the massage toys and chairs that you can buy at stores like the Sharper Image, be it almost sort of aromatherapy and, and massage therapy as a way of bringing touch back. And that's one of the areas, in fact, where compared to when I wrote the Sensism Report back in 2003, so much we know so much more about, say, the stimulation of the skin than we did 20 years ago. And that, you know, in 2003, the idea that massage was, you know, that we needed to stimulate the skin didn't really ring true. It's more like a, a luxury than a necessity. But now, 20 years later, there's a lot more evidence of the pleasure receptors in the skin and the benefits across species of of the sort of pleasant tactile stimulation from touch through to sound through to, to vision. I think there really is a sense of trying to engineer the environments in which we inhabit, which for most of us, according to the statistics, as urban dwellers spending 90 to 95% of our lives indoors, it really becomes a question of how to modify or to engineer uh, control sensory environments such that they deliver on that sort of social, emotional, cognitive well-being, perhaps by recognising you know, the problems of light hunger for those in northern climates, not getting enough natural light, so spending so much time indoors in the winter months, maybe a lack of variation in the kinds of stimulation we get. You see, a lot of interest, as you mentioned, in sort of biophilia and of trying to bring nature into the built environment, be it in the home, be it in the office, be it in the hospital, clearly can have beneficial effects. And that is you know, really kind of a perceptual engineering to optimize stimulation, perhaps matching it to the kinds of environments that we have evolved in and that I might involve bringing in greenery and water, the sounds of um, the birds and the animals. It might even be, and this is one of the amazing things that popped out of the book, was you know, when researchers have studied indoor temperatures, homes in North America, from Alaska to Texas and from the warmest to the coldest states, they find that everyone seems to set their uh, sort of central heating, air conditioning at about 23 degrees centigrade and at a humidity level. That if you compare that to the um, climate in every region in the, on Earth, it turns out it, it provides a closest match for the Ethiopian highlands where uh, we evolved. So it's almost like you know we're trying to recreate the temperature and humidity that we were familiar with uh, such a long time ago. Uh, amazing, but I think that sort of idea of the, uh, bringing nature into the built environment is, is very powerful. When it is kind of perceptual engineering, it is clearly demonstrably improving health and well-being in a variety of ways. And I think as we move forward, may increasingly involve almost kind of a bit more of a sort of a dynamic change. If one thinks about where I am here in Colombia in the middle of nature, then you're very aware of the changing kind of sensory profile over the course of the day. How, uh, you know, uh, the world sounds a lot louder, four or five o'clock in the morning with the birds. It's fragrant at certain times of the day. And those sort of temporal variations of the outdoor environment tend to be lost in the kind of static indoor environments that we built for ourselves. And hence, I think it's a really important role to try and perhaps uh, have more dynamic environments and really to question, and this is what I've been a couple of my latest Articles have been about really to question the architect and say, what responsibility do they have for the light hunger, for the sick building syndrome, for all of those working in open plan offices with so much noise that they really can't concentrate with restaurants that are so loud? I think we need to think more carefully. And to do that, we need to almost start by realizing how much our environment affects us. 
through each and every sense. How if we put ourselves in environments where the different senses are telling an incongruent story, where maybe the scent in the store or shopping mall or the home is alerting, but the music is relaxing, it can be really um, hard for us, for the us or for the consumer to to resolve what's going on, what that environment means. And so, that, hence, you know, the, that question of congruency keeps coming up again and again. And almost how I see, I was just on a conference call with a colleague a couple of days ago who's an architect working on biophilic design and you know, how he's, most of the plants that he brings into offices are all kind of tropical plants that we find here in the garden in Colombia, but he's bringing them into office environments in the UK. So that's kind of incongruent in some way to have tropical plants in a British environment. We have the plants, but you don't really have the sounds or the smells of nature that would go with those plants. So I guess sort of incongruence in a different way. And I think there are lots of interesting questions there about when and how congruency is important and on which elements of nature can we bring into the built environment to improve our well-being. And in fact, you know, ultimately, can we do better than just simply bringing a few uh, pot plants into indoors? You know, Can we actually create an environment that is better, that's almost a caricatured or better than nature, if we understand really what it is about the natural environments that is having such an impact on us. And throughout the book, you make reference to evolutionary psychology and you sometimes <laughs> the explanations are just so stories. Sometimes there seems to be more solid foundation for the explanations. Has evolutionary psychology been helpful to you in trying to get to the heart of why people react the way they do to these environmental cues? Uh, I think it provides uh, one source of sort of potential explanation. I, I think evolutionary psychology sometimes can be just, you know, they're just so stories that can be very hard to prove. But I think that's sort of more general point of that we may have evolved within particular environments and that recreating in some part those environments that have been lost through contemporary architecture and changes in sort of patterns of living is uh, an interesting idea and seems to make predictions and support a lot of the uh, emerging research on the benefits of, you know, sights, sounds and smells of uh, nature. And for me, it's almost, I think it works there as well as in, in sort of our work on food and you know, our use of herbs and spices in cooking too. I'm kind of drawn to this sort of evolutionary psychology accounts of um, the role that such spices may have played once upon a time in you know, killing parasites and such like before we had fridges. So I think time and again, one has to be a little bit sceptical, a little bit cautious about accepting everything the evolutionary psychologists might put out there. It does provide a framework. It does seem to make some sensible, logical predictions and provide a grounding for the growing number of psychologists now and practitioners who are interested in uh, biophilic design. Uh, and for me, that's you know, very often tends to focus on the visual because we are visually dominant creatures. But I think you know, equally important are the, are, are the roles of the sounds of nature and congruency between what we see and what we hear. I mean, here in, in Colombia, it's been very nice while I've been here during COVID lockdown because the airport's been mostly closed in Bogota. And even though we're 40 kilometers away, we still get we're on the flight path for Bogota Airport, El Dorado, and we get you no know, planes, so anthropocene noise. Yeah, every five minutes, day in, day out, day and night, and that sort of disappeared. And I think there really is a question about how detrimental the noise of engines and motors and planes and motorbikes and traffic is or can be for us and how they can almost you know, eliminate the beneficial effects of seeing or of being in nature. And for me, I wonder whether you know, ultimately you can walk and extend this sort of evolutionary account and say if being in touch with nature is a good thing, 
we can be in touch, we can see nature, we can hear nature, but we can also smell nature. And so maybe that whole literature on aromatherapy and the use of you know, essential oils, of fragrant plants and fruits and herbs, you can reframe it as smelling nature. So is an aromatherapy really kind of the olfactory nature effect? And if so, maybe it provides a grounding for why exposure to certain ambient odors should be beneficial in terms of relaxing us or alerting us. Well, it seems like, uh, you know, with COVID, non-pharmaceutical interventions that have been kind of imposed on people as a way of impeding the spread of the virus may have had some negative consequences for people, in particular, people being contained indoors and limited in their ability to, to get out and about. And the percentage of time spent indoors may have actually increased for many people during covid do you see these this forced you know, removal from nature as a potential problem that people have had to go through over the last year? So, yeah, I imagined initially that there may be people who are spending more time indoors as a result of COVID. But you know, all the statistics going back 20 years all say that uh, urban dwellers, we spend 90, 95% of the time indoors already. So we can't really get any higher than that. So what I think what COVID might have done is actually sort of... And some of us might be spending more time outside. <laughs> yeah, COVID might have done is, is certainly sort of reduce the variability or the variance or the, or the range of environments, indoor environments that we're exposed to. It's mostly going to be the uh, home environment. I think uh, I've been sort of keeping a record both on the one hand of you know, the increase in touch hunger because people can't touch anymore or they kind of care home residents in the UK who were saying, you know, who can sort of see on occasion their relatives through the glass and they can speak to them through the intercom, but they're not allowed to touch in person for fear of transmitting the disease. And these, you know, heartbreaking stories of these elderly individuals saying, you know, all I want to do is just give my family a hug. And what, you know, what, what clearer message could you have about the benefits of touch and the need in the increasing touch hunger that we're faced with? And in a way, in, in terms of nature, what it struck me was... During at least, I think, the first lockdown or two, because things seem to have changed with each subsequent lockdown, at least here in the UK, was how many journalists were commenting on the sounds of the birds that they could hear for the first time when there was no traffic. We experienced that with my wife and I in Oxford. We lived near Port Meadow, a big floodplain. And on the far side of it is the ring road around Oxford City. And normally, it's just a constant drone of noise, but there's virtually no traffic for four or five months. And suddenly silence and suddenly you can hear far more of the birds. And so you know, ironically, in a way, maybe COVID has actually either brought us closer to nature or made us more aware or allowed us to hear nature in a way that we had was sort of masked before by all of that kind of urban uh, noise. And maybe a sort of value, maybe it makes us sort of value nature more when it's taken away from us, when we're only allowed to go out once a day, as we were in the UK then you can make sure to do so in a way that you might not have done if you hadn't been, had a restriction put on you. Well, one of the things that I think a lot of people have done is they've paid a lot more attention to their home environment and uh, home improvement projects have taken off and the, it's very difficult to find a, a contractor, I think, during COVID. In your book, you spend some time talking about environments like stores and hospitals that and work environments that an individual might not have a whole lot of control over but we do have quite a bit of control over our, our own homes and maybe our own bedrooms and dining rooms and, and kitchens i mean i found this extremely interesting and useful information in terms of how to engineer each of those spaces to achieve the desired results right in the bedroom you know you want to sleep in the dining room you want to enhance the culinary uh, enjoyment and uh, community with your 
co-diners in the kitchen. You know, you certainly have a, a kitchen that's, that's helpful to the cooking process. Uh, what are some of the insights that you found most interesting? I have my list of interesting <laughs> insights, but which ones did you find super useful for your own uh, kind of home design? I mean, I guess for me, when I was researching the how to sense hack sleep or the bedroom, that was the one that had the most, the strongest or most profound effect on me. So I had been one of those sort of individuals who would get up at four o'clock in the morning and, and sleep four hours or six hours. And I think that was all fine. And I was just struck by reading literature about you know, how detrimental to our health uh, and well-being. Right. So Matt, Matt Walker's. Yeah, yeah. Book, for, for Matt, Matt Walker's book. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Temptation. And I have done that myself, you know, years ago was to, if you can't sleep, then take some sleeping tablets, use sort of a sort of pharmacological intervention. But that tends not to be the right kind of, doesn't deliver the right kind of sleep to help restore individuals. So I was really struck by how, you know, in some cases, patients who've been in long-term use of uh, sleeping tablets, if you take them off the sleeping tablets and instead, you know, use, use a scent of lavender, you can actually increase the right sort of sleep through this sort of sensory intervention more effectively than through a sort of pharmacological one. I think about in the kitchen, I really worry a lot how for many people, whether or not we're in COVID, when we're at home, the kitchen come dining room has become kind of the center of many of our homes. When kitchens used to be things that were sort of locked away, hidden away that you wouldn't really spend much time in. Now we, the families seem to spend much of their time, social time together uh, in that kitchen space. That's fine. Maybe explains why you know people are spending so much more on their home uh, renovations and home kitchens than ever before. But at the same time, I, I do worry that if we spend so much time in the kitchens, then does that mean that we're being surrounded by the aromas of food, by the sight of food? And if so, I think we we are. Then that's probably something we should worry about, given all the research saying you know, that very often our decision to eat is driven by sensory cues, by the smell of food or by the sight of food. Maybe we should be more careful about either removing some of those you know, almost continuously available food smells and sights from this t- the places where we spend so much uh, of our time. Yeah, I have to confess that after I read the book, I immediately ordered some lavender for myself from my bedroom. I'll report back whether I see any improvement or not. But uh, you also talk about, you know, different uh, work environments. And I've taught a class on the workplace and I've noticed that companies like Gensler and Steelcase and HR departments at large companies like Google and and Facebook, they're taking a a big interest in the work environment. It used to be you just try to jam as many people in as to this open environment and cut down on your real estate costs. And now because employees are so expensive, it really does make a huge difference if there's any kind of problem with the lighting or problem with the noise pollution, do you think that employers and and people who are in charge of these work environments are starting to take seriously the work around workplace design? Are you seeing this? Are you seeing this happen in, in real time? Yes, a bit slowly, but I think maybe the obviously sort of trends in workplace design come and go as trends do. I think. There's always that sort of push to people in the open plan offices, makes it more space, more flexible, saves uh, on costs. And yet, you know, the research says, you know, workers lose you know, almost an hour a day from distraction by noise from other people that they can hear in those sort of open plan offices. With kind of COVID, I mean, there, there is a debate ongoing just how many workers after having spent a year or so possibly working from home, will people go back to working in offices or not? 
And if the employer wants the workers to go back, there's kind of an, an inertia there. People have got so used to perhaps working from home that many of them might you know, need an extra push in order for them to want to return to the office. Not all, but for some. And hence that might help to speed up or to accentuate the need to kind of you know, make environments that are more um, welcoming and that are um, more productive. And that can be either environments that reduce sick leave and various cognitive or well-being problems from being in, in sort of unhealthy spaces and the extreme somewhere like, you know, sick building syndrome from, was very popular a few decades ago from these kind of buildings without natural ventilation and lots of volatile organic chemicals through the, you know, the sort of emergence of the biophilic design and of the uh, greening the offices that have been sort of championed, as you say, by, I guess, the likes of Facebook and so on. But uh, Amazon HQ, I, I mentioned in the book, where it's, it's more like a greenhouse up in Seattle than, than a head office, it would seem like, with you know, 30,000 plants. And of course, most of the companies couldn't afford, I suppose, to invest that much in the shrubbery. But I think that there is a growing awareness. It's fine to say, okay, yes, we should all be working in offices that are green with the sound of water tinkling away and fountains. And that's, of course, got a cost attached. And so it's only going to stick, I suppose, if we have the evidence to say this is um, a financially sensible strategy that biophilically designing your office, for example, you can reduce sick leave, you can improve productivity, and hence the costs associated uh, with these interventions uh, and making the environment more sensorially appealing are worth it in the long run. And in fact, now there are a few studies that have been um, one nice study done in the UK and in the Netherlands that I mentioned in the workplace chapter that you know did sort of carefully controlled study or a sort of office slash call claims centre, and they greened one floor but not the other floor, and vice versa, nicely controlled, and were able to demonstrate you know that the workers were significantly more productive in the green environment. Just the green versus lean, yep. right? Green yep. versus lean. And with that evidence in hand, that maybe there's a, there's a hope that uh, these kind of inventions will not only be the preserve of the uh, kind of the Silicon Valley uh, type companies, but may uh, be extended more broadly. And especially maybe what we might need to think about the kinds of tasks that are involved and maybe perhaps the environment has a bigger impact on those in creative industries than in certain others. And certainly, you know, my, my own building in Oxford, where I work, the psychology department was closed down with asbestos three years ago. So talk about a sick building. We have seen the architect's plans for the new building that's going up, the Life and Mind building, in the next two or three years. And from all the architect's plans, that's, you know, you can see the emphasis on a natural light, big windows, and a lot of, you know, greenery in the central space. So uh, that's one example where this, some of these ideas have been uh, taken up. Now, in, in architects tend to favor the visual. I mean, you mentioned we're predominantly visual creatures and architects will, you know, they draw buildings, they make maquettes, the, the documents that they produce are, are primarily about the, the visual appearance of the space, you know, either from the inside or from the outside. But in, in your work, you continually emphasize that's only really one part of the whole experience. And in marketing, we talk about in-store displays and we talk about shelf placement, but you talk a lot about how the, the smells can drive outcomes at least as much as the, the visual. You talk a lot about music and how music is one of the most profound sensory experiences and can have the biggest impact. You know, should we be talking about sound architects and smell architects? Uh, do architects need to go back to school to really relearn this? Or is this always going to be something that's like an add-on to what the architects do? 
I have, in fact, just published a couple of papers in uh, Architectural Digest or Design and um, Psychology Journals all about multi-sensory architecture. So almost you know, I have to have finished writing the book. I've got to be thinking much more about the implications and repercussions of that primarily visual design amongst architects. And um, I think it's not too much to, to talk about. As far as I know, like Autodesk software, whether it's Revit or CAD, there's no way to design the smell of the environment in that software, mm-hmm. as far as I know. And yes, there are there have been a number of buildings that have been given signature scents. Sometimes going mysterious, a little bit mysterious to the general public. The Barclay Stadium in New York was one that, when it was opened in 2013, commentators were saying it's got a very sort of distinctive smell in the space, and probably deliberately introduced. Uh, or goes can go back to the 1910s and, uh, and find cinemas in Germany that were pumping out the fragrance from fragrance fountains. Blimps in the air over the auditorium. Those apartments sold in um, Miami a year or two ago that have its own distinctive, its own bespoke fragrance. Now, these are all just isolated examples thus far, but I think there are a growing number of them. They're also supported by a growing range of scent-emitting technologies. Of course, the old-school way might just be to have a bunch of flowers on the counter in the store. But what is you know, so notable to me is that when I've been on sort of store audits and store visits with some corporate clients in London over the last few years, going walking down Regent Street, and every store has a scent. Some that you might expect it to have, but many that you don't. Bag stores that sort of smell of leather and denim stores that have Scent's been pumped out of the air conditioning. So I think it's a, a much more widespread use of scent in retail, certainly, facilitated by its growing awareness, its impact, and the technology, technological availability. And I think that will continue to grow. I think in terms of, sort of sound design as well is, of course, music uh, can play a role, and but also the sounds of nature are being put in, whether it's you know, the sounds of trickling water in the open plan office to mask out other people's conversations, be it the sound of the tropical rainforest that they used to pump out in Glasgow airport, be it you know, the nature sounds you get in car sales rooms and elsewhere. In Colombia, and my father-in-law passed away two years ago now. Ricardo, he was an architect and he built the house in which me and my wife stay while I'm in sabbatical. So I'm very interested to think about him and whether why this was a, such a special place for him, surrounded by nature, with with fountains and water trickling. And, you know, what we are, as we're here for a few months, have been deliberately introducing kind of water, musical water, waterfalls, surrounding the house by the sort of the um, Caballero de Noche, the sort of night flowering jasmine, to have the scent, introducing lots of colour. And so I think once you become aware of how you can design for all the senses, then it's something that you know, can be simple for any one of us to do and talk of a, you know, of gustatory architecture. The taste of architecture might be a bit much. One can find here and there architects who say that marble was just so delicious, I just had to lick it. I mean, what I've learned is that for my dining room, at least, I need heavy cutlery uh, and I need a round table and I need a tablecloth to optimize <laughs> the experience of my diners. That's right. I guess for dining, for some of us, we like to create the best meal possible, maybe the stickiest memories of, you know, we're having a dinner party. For others, it may be, you know, how can I, what can I do to my own uh, kitchen to help me eat less while not always feeling hungry? One thing that drives me nuts is I, I can't, I cannot stand uh, scented candles or heavily perfumed people at my meals. <laughs> it's a pet peeve of mine. 
But this is a matter of life and death, right? This may be a life matter of life and death. So what kind of due diligence should we do before we go into the hospital for surgery? Should we, should we find out what kind of music the surgeon's listening to? You know, what, what kind of, should we make sure that we have uh, some nice greenery outside of the window? Or in the room, or pictures of nature, or art. Yes, all of the above. So this idea of sort of a sensory design in healthcare is one an area that's exploding over the last few years. Almost what I think you know, well, we've had a lot of um, research on kind of multisensory design of retail spaces now in healthcare. There's a growing awareness and growing competitiveness in some parts, especially of the states. And sort of the healthcare provision that is kind of a realization one needs to go beyond just the machines or what they can do, and the doctors and surgeons, and actually think about um, delivering designing environments that are conducive to, say, uh, recovery, to a uh, reduction of stress. And that can be everything from scent on the one hand. I mean, you just think about, you know, when you go to the dentist and you get the smell of eugenol, kind of the clove smell of fillings, that completely for most of us make us really pretty tense. That's not an intrinsically sort of stressful smell. It's just when we, we associate that smell with what's going to happen and sort of the pain and the drilling and so on. I think it's probably the same thing for hospitals that maybe the scent may be making people stressful. Clearly, there's a huge problem with noise in many hospital wards, especially in the open and the public wards in the UK with you know, more than 100 decibels of noise far above the kind of international recommendations. That is reducing patients' ability to sleep clearly. And if they don't sleep, it's going to take longer to recover. And beyond that, so we're thinking about how to reduce noise from all the beepers and buzzers and alarms reflected off all those hard surfaces. I think this idea of, sort of music in medicine is one that appears in the healthcare chapter, but also I've written separately with my colleague Steve Keller. And that question you ask of, should you ask what your surgeon's going to listen to? It might strike you as bizarre. I mean, who would have thought that the surgeons listen to music while they operate on you? But the majority uh, do, and there is research out there showing that certain kinds of music can enhance the quality of stitches that uh, surgeons make, and hence music may affect both the performance of the operating staff, but for you personally, hopefully, when you're being operated on, you're out, so you can't hear any of that. But what you can hear is both prior to surgery, music can be helped, can be useful to help relax people, and thereafter, amazingly, you can use music in place of painkillers in some cases. So various groups of patients have been shown to be able to uh, or require uh, less medication, less painkillers provided with music that may help them to relax. So I think it's a really important role for, for music throughout our interaction with sort of the healthcare uh, system. And it's probably going to lead, I wonder, I give the example of uh, Brian Eno, who in hospital sort of created music for those who are sort of coming to terms with grief. But one might think, you know, are we at a point where we're going to start to design, either create music specifically for medical purposes or think about, you know, curating the kind of the Spotify playlist for hospital patients or the visitors? I may not be too far away because it does kind of have a profound effect. It's probably been studied most thoroughly in healthcare, but also, of course, affects us when we're shopping, when we're out dining and when we're in our home. I found a lot of insight with respect to the shopping experience, with respect to the driving experience, with respect to my home and work environments. And maybe some people aren't interested in any of that. Maybe they'll just want to buy the book because of your insights on dating. And I'm wondering, with the rise of online dating, where people are just swiping left and right after maybe less than a second of, of visual stimulation, is this having a, a radical impact on people's experience of romance by 
putting so much emphasis on the visual. We, we all know that smells and sounds and all these other senses have historically played a huge role in mate selection. And it seems like they're being pushed aside in favor of this purely visual filtration process. In terms of that sort of first uh, judgment call, then is primarily visual. Uh, I guess that doesn't mean you can't still do a bit of sense hacking, even if you've only got a picture to go on. Because as I point out in the book, when you're thinking about which of your picture own photos should you put up there on the dating site, you may not be the best judge of which pictures look most attractive. Clearly, the evidence from the research suggests you'd be best asking some a few of your friends to pick your picture for you, play a more attractive one, generally attractive. Uh, one might also think about um, there's research suggesting that if you show you have a picture of yourself you know, holding a musical instrument, something like a guitar, that seems to make you more attractive to uh, the opposite sex. Also, some research around the power of wearing red or of holding something, some debate in the literature, but certainly enough evidence for me to be forever wearing my red trousers, uh, you know, holding a red computer bag, say, or even the background against which you're presented in a picture can influence others, both in terms of, you know, how aroused they might be. And one of my favourite examples in the dating chapter, you know, about the classic old studies where people would be asked for a date after or while they're on a wobbly kind of rope bridge or after coming off a a fairground ride uh, where we sort of misattribute our arousal from the bridge or from the fairground ride and saying, thinking that must be the other person who's doing that to us. If I'm feeling so aroused, they must be really attractive. So let's go on a date. So that's going to be hard to capture in the purely visual domain. But, you know, ultimately, most romance progresses from the purely visual into the multisensory domain when people meet. Uh, and so there are you know, questions there about the importance of the sound or of touch or of a person's smell and whether you know, each of our senses actually tells us something different. Is somebody's visual attractiveness correlated with how attractive their voice sounds or are they entirely independent things? And it turns out there is some relation there through to kind of some of the amazing research coming out suggesting that your smell, uh, be it your natural odour, or be it your choice of perfume, so different amongst different individuals, may actually be helping to advertise your particular immune profile and how your body smell, you know, from that, if I just give you somebody else's t-shirt, you can predict reasonably well their age, their health status, emotional stress, even some of their sort of personality dimensions are available through a smell. And it's that sort of power smell that makes me really worried, you know, some of the things that we don't realise that we've lost through COVID. And I really think wearing face masks is going to reduce our ability to smell others. Uh, and that thing that we all do, most of us, at least when we meet somebody else, we shake hands. Or if we're in France, we may you know, give a, a French kiss uh, to either cheek of the person we've met. And if you observe people who've just, just shaken hands with somebody else, within a minute, they all sniff their fingers. None of us realize we do it. But if you observe as a psychologist what people do, within a minute of shaking hands with somebody, we all sniff off it, our fingers. And from that, we're obviously getting some kind of information about the other person. It's also happening subliminally, but in this world where we you know, elbow bump rather than shake hands, we've lost a key source of olfactory information about others. And that may, I think, you know, lead to paired social judgments. Because the more cues we have about somebody's sound, their smell, what they look like, the better judgments we can make about the appropriateness of a match. And also maybe an increasing feeling of alienation that if we're no longer able to get those subtle social smells from others, the smells we didn't 
realize were there, the smells that we didn't realize we were picking up, but which are always there in the background, processed subconsciously and part of our experience and part of our emotional connection and part of, you know, this sort of uh, sensory imbalance that we have faced for a long time, in some cases has been made worse by the COVID restrictions. That's probably, I think, the scariest thing for me about the risk of getting COVID is the loss of smell, which I think is has been shown to be the, the loss of that smell seems to have the biggest impact of all, this, of all the other senses in terms of leading to depression and suicides from what I've read. Yep, that's right. And as our, when you ask people, which sense would you least like to lose? We all say our eyes. No one thinks about, you know, twice about losing sense of smell. And yet when you look at the sort of suicide reports, everyone from Michael Hutchins from excess, who lost his sense of smell after a street ball brawl, committed suicide a little thereafter. And, you know, the suicide rates are highest or very high after the loss of sense of smell, presumably because it takes away that emotional connection with the world. And that while those who lose their sight can sometimes still imagine from the sound of their lover's voice, what the person looks like. When we lose our sense of smell, many of us don't really have any olfactory imagery to fill in the gap. And that's part of why it so, can be so uh, devastating. Well, I think this is, I think what you've done is, in addition to pointing out all this amazing research, you really uh, raised more questions than you've answered. So many of these insights are built on old studies that lack the power that we'd like. And you've highlighted that, I think, in, in your work. And it's just a call for more research and it's a call for uh, more researchers. So I hope this call is listened to and we see more people moving into this field. So I'd really love to thank you, Charles, for joining me today. Uh, pleasure. And next time, maybe we can talk about gastrophysics. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Mm-hmm.